the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Podcast Care of Cooper Cherry. Very excited today to have Andrew M. Koch professor and author, currently in the Department of Government and Justice Studies at Appalachian State. And uh, Andrew, thanks so much. Or Do you prefer if I call you Andrew or Andy? Uh, well, Andrew, Andy is fine. Andy's good. Okay. Um, so we've been trying to do this for a while, um, but I'm <laughs> very excited to actually get this going after, after a few weeks. And thanks so much for taking the time again um, out of your week. I know you've got a lot going on in your life, so... Thanks so much. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. But I think one uh, one kind of milestone for the podcast here is that um, Andy is the first person that we have actually I've actually covered on the podcast previously, and uh, that episode is called "The Migos and Its Owns" that I did with John Zichterman of Beep Beep Lettuce on an article that Andy had written called uh, Max Sterner. Last, the last Hegelian or the first post-structuralist, which I'll go ahead and, and post a link to that in the, in the show notes for everyone so they can also check that out, that out if they're interested. Um, I think that Andy's a fantastic writer and really enjoyed that piece and uh, really enjoyed his, his work overall. Um, so I think the primary kind of ideas that we want to dive into are related to a book that Andy wrote called Materialism and Social Inquiry in the Continental Tradition and Philosophy. And so that's kind of where we're going to focus on. But I really, and if you don't mind, wanted to, since I've got you here in the flesh, I, I think I had posed this to you yesterday, but I was curious how much parallel you see in Stirner and Derrida in terms of, I think in particular, when it comes to their they kind of have a similar vibe in terms of what they're doing with, um, I guess, the Enlightenment and idealism. Do you, do you see that as well? And I might even be cribbing that from your piece, to be honest. Yeah. Um, well, I, in terms of the framework in which they're discussing things, uh, the, the language is very different. In terms of conceptually what they're trying to get at, I think there are some parallels. I mean, I'm, you know, one of the things I always try and stay focused on is the, the historical context in which people are writing. And so they're, um, you know, not everybody has the same uh, language. Disciplines develop over time. They create their own language. And, uh, and Stirner certainly doesn't have the sophisticated language of semiotics that, that Derrida is drawing on. Um, but in terms of their concerns, I think they, sh they share a project in the sense that they're both concerned about um, sort of, how can I frame this, dealing with 
the question of metaphysics in Western philosophy. And I think Stirner, I mean, comes at it with a sledgehammer. Derrida <laughs> is much more sophisticated. But I think that they're both trying to say some similar things, not in every case, but uh, raising questions about what has been uh, what I, I call sometimes the rationality project in the Western tradition, um, which of course uh, gets framed as enlightenment humanism since about the 17th century. And, uh, and then this takes on the character of a of an overarching meta-narrative that informs um, the notion of sovereignty in the modern state, that informs the notion of modern institutions and how they operate, uh, that frames democracy as a locus of freedom in, in the sovereign state. And so uh, I think that Stirner and Derrida are both looking at the underlying sort of metaphysics of the language that informs how we behave. And so I think in that sense, I think there are some parallels. I mean, and I think too, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know if it's, uh, if Derrida had this in mind, but I mean, he does reference Stirner a bit in uh, Inspectors of Marx. Well, yeah. It was I think funny he's, when... he's examining the German ideology as part yeah. of that as well, right? Yeah. Well, Marx was obviously not a fan of Stirner. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but see, Stirner... Uh, is trying to do something that is new and unique in a lot of respects. He's trying to undercut the foundations of the Western tradition, not, not just taking out the religious aspects of, of the, the metaphysical structures in philosophy and society, but also trying to deal with what emerges uh, as the humanistic model as well. And, uh, and so we see in Stirner these questions about um, why we believe what we believe, which is a question that Derrida is also very interested in, as well as Foucault. You know, where, and uh, I would argue that's sort of the crux to the whole genealogical method, which is you know, where does our belief system come from and what reinforces it? Because the Western project, and I think, I think Derrida frames this pretty nicely, um, you know, was he, how does he say it? We've been constructed around a column of being which isn't really there, you know, um, that the West has been searching for a foundation upon which to build its political and social edifice for thousands of years. Um, and that this is, this is the project. And, and Stirner is looking at this, Derrida is looking at this and saying, hey, you know, wait a minute, let's ask, what are, what are the epistemological foundations here? What are we operating under? And the, the, the answer that they're coming to is, well, we kind of made it up. And, um, and it's, it's not that it doesn't serve a function. Um, it's not there, that there isn't, isn't a pragmatic side to this, you know, um, it's, it, it may be good that people believe in certain practices and ideas for their outcomes in the pragmatic sense, um, but that's different than saying that we have some, somehow captured the essential truth of being. And sometimes those two things get muddled. Let's go ahead, Andy, and dive into, into the, I guess, the main focus here in, in terms of materialism and the continental tradition. And I think it's interesting 
to note that you, so you start out the book with a kind of explaining your model for materialism that you're going to investigate. So maybe that might be a good place to just, to just begin before we dive in to, to the rest and just kind of art, maybe articulate that for us, at least kind of set the table for us, I suppose, um, in terms of what you're, what you're getting at here. Well, I don't have the list in front of me. I could, I could find it here somewhere uh, of all the different things I mentioned in there. But I come up with, with 10 items that I think are kind of essential to creating a materialist philosophy. And um, I expect there to be some criticism that this is a little too much of a Weberian ideal type, which I, I, I fully accept. But I was trying to lay out... Um, what I think are necessary conditions for the development of a materialist philosophy, that it focus on, um, you know, the materiality of the body in the world of human beings living inside of history, but also recognizing that the knowledge systems that we create are, are our own, you know, that, that the knowledge we create is human knowledge. It's not universal knowledge. And it tends to be historically contingent and therefore tied to the particular place where we are in history and the, and the totality of the context that informs our thinking. Um, another aspect of this is um, I, I would argue that uh, materialism has to be relativistic. And I don't mean that just in the sense of a kind of uh, moral or ethical relativism, um, but also in terms of a kind of epistemological relativism, that people live in different ages under different epistemological paradigms. And as a result, they see the world or construct their image of that world by using that paradigm. Um, and so... I think this is what Foucault is trying to get at right. in his idea of epistemological ruptures in history. And I, I think that that's a very useful concept. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, immediate. I was actually going to ask, so you kind of covered that. I do think it is interesting that you start the book out with Kant <laughs> yeah. as your first uh, thinker that you're looking at. And I had, I forget where I've heard this, but I have, interestingly, the parallels, I've heard Kant being referred to as sort of, I don't know, the maybe the first postmodernist or post-structuralist, rather. So I well, think it's I interesting. I never did Protagoras quite, probably right. gets yeah. that moniker, but, but yeah. Um, Which I don't, um, I never quite understood exactly how that worked out. Of course, like I, I've, I've honest, I've not read much Kant, to be honest. Even I find even the kind of secondary sources to be pretty, pretty boring. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it is tedious going, but there's some really important stuff going on in Kant. Um, I would say, uh, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, um, Kant is just a huge figure, and we need to deal with him all the time because, you know, he's the great builder, the constructor, the Apollonian in Nietzschean terms. It's a... Um, and so his system is incredibly elaborate and complex, um, and not all of it would work uh, within the materialist framework that I lay out in the first chapter of the book. I mean, clearly, 
his ethical system is very metaphysical in nature. It's sort of classic enlightenment uh, rationality of the, that reason ascends to know the truth. Um, and therefore, we can arrive at things like natural law through the use of our reasoning ability. That, that side of Kant, informed by his discussion about the noumenal, um, that side is certainly not materialistic. But when he talks about uh, the phenomenal side um, in his dualistic philosophy, um, he makes several observations that are particularly interesting. Um, the most important of which I think is probably the, the discussion about assigning identities. Um, he will describe it as a discussion of essence, right? That we never know a thing in itself. So we never know the essence of an object in the phenomenal world. I think this is an important concept in informing our thinking uh, about uh, not only the physical world, but also the human world. Because it's not, um, we're not always describing objects as, you know, subjects describing objects. They're also subjects describing other subjects in a framework in which um, we have created the idea that we can then define identities and they will serve as our platform. Um, you know, if you look back through the history of, of Western political philosophy, it tends to begin with the assignment of identity, whether it's Plato describing uh, the nature of human subjects um, as being uh, unequal in nature, although possessing rationality in these unequal forms, um, and qualitatively different levels of rationality, all of which are part of the Platonic system, which then is the foundation upon which he builds the Republic. Um, difference among uh, people in terms of their intellect, finding a filtering system to select the wisest people to rule. Uh, Hobbes's Leviathan, begins with a description of human beings as selfish, nasty brutes, killing each other over property and everything else, power. Um, or Kropotkin, um, arguing that people are basically gregarious and, uh, and rational and therefore they're corrupted, that naturalness is corrupted by the state. And so, my point is that if we look back at these, these frameworks for understanding how we build society, they always kind of begin with this construction of the subject, the construction of human identity. And, uh, and an awful lot gets built upon them. And, uh, and so what Kant, what I think Kant introduces is the idea and he's really not the first, but he articulates this idea that we can't really define those essences. You know, um, we build an awful lot on them, and he's going to make his own assumptions about essence. Uh, but at the same time, um, if we understand that uh, ident identity can't achieve closure, let's say, 
that we can't definitive, definitively articulate what the human being is. Um, we can't define the human being in itself, just as we can't describe, you know, this bottle in every conceivable manifestation of its essence in the world. Because we're finite beings, and for Kant, everything is infinitely complex, everything is infinitely connected, and the real for, for the for the Kantian view, you know, we would have to begin every sentence with, well, first there was the Big Bang, because <laughs> you know, it's all forward, connected right? in an infinitely right. long causal chain. And, and so he brings to us this, this idea that um, we should be thinking about um, our inability or take into account our inability to define anything in its essence. I think that's a really important idea for materialism, for post-structuralism. I think it's sort of at the basis of post-structuralism. Um, add to that, um, Kant also in the critique of judgment begins to talk about the idea of, uh, of an aesthetic paradigm and what that looks like. Uh, and we see the opening of, of subjective factors within a Kantian framework where he's always trying to create a, an objective form of, of inquiry. We, we see um, Kant leaving open certain possibilities for objective factors in the critique of judge or subjective factors, which is a little different and, and I think also important because that uh, we begin to see that this realm of aesthetics is one in which subjectivity plays a certain role or a certain, uh, and so the uniqueness of individual experience, the idea of difference, now can enter the picture within a framework that ties it to other cognitive faculties. Um, because I think the third thing I'll mention about Kant is that he, he be, gets us thinking about cognition as opposed to just sensation. Uh, when Kant is talking about um, the categories, you know, the four categories, um, quantity, quantity, quality, relation, modality, he's talking about the way in which we process information. Um, and, and getting us thinking about the idea of cognition as opposed to just sensation. And cognition being how we understand the world, not just how we sense the world. Uh, and I think that, that is, that's important for us to think about. And so, yeah, Kant may seem like an odd place to start. He's not, obviously not a materialist. He's often described as an idealist by some people. Or, Transcendental idealism, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, there are certain elements in here that I think are important in developing an understanding of, of materialism. Interesting. And so the, the next chapter, you jump straight into Marx, but I, I kind of want to maybe subvert that a little bit and, and maybe use Weber, who you, you tackle in the fourth chapter of the book, as maybe our connective tissue, since you do kind of make that tie-in with Kant and Weber in particular, and then we can maybe circle back to Marx and, and Hegel, because I think that 
that chapter as well as Nietzsche and then the, the post-structuralism chapter, those are probably where I want to spend the majority of, of our time. Um, the Weber chapter, um, I mean, I felt compelled in some ways to add Weber because Weber is where I sort of started all of this many years ago. Um, and I, I've book out on Weber and published some articles on Weber. And I'm, I, you know, I confess I'm a Weber fan, even though I, I, I think that there are some, some critical shortcomings. And, and Weber's clearly not a strict materialist, but I think one of the things that Weber begins to introduce with his interpretive sociology is he takes that Kantian notion that we don't know a thing in itself and applies it to social reality and says, look, we can never have complete causal explanations of anything in history, that the only thing that we can really do is interpret. Uh, hence his whole notion of interpretive sociology. And what was really striking to me when I read Derrida's dissemination, how similar some of the concepts that Derrida talks about are to some of what Weber talks about in the last chapter of the methodology of the social sciences. The whole idea of the, the cut and the scission in, in dissemination is very similar to what uh, Weber describes in the last chapter of the methodology, um, talking about uh, causal sufficiency, uh, trying to describe the world in terms of uh, the causal factors that are significant to the topic at hand, since you cannot explain anything in its complete causal complexity in the finite world. And so, uh, now, there are obviously differences. I think Derrida is a little bit more in an aesthetic framework of knowledge than Weber is. And, and Weber clearly rejects the Nietzschean framework, clearly reje rejects the aesthetic model, but at the same time um, is doing some things that move us towards a more material understanding of history because he sees the world as being moved by concrete empirical events. And I think that that's important. There's no teleology. There's no uh, underlying uh, direction. There's no real underlying metaphysics, except you know, some, uh, some of the Kantian stuff slops over. But at the same time, in terms of the ethical system, I would describe uh, as I do in my book on Weber, is Weber being a, more of an existentialist uh, in that regard, talking about the power of the subject, you know, the subject confronting the world. Uh, that's Weber, you know, and, and trying to make sense out of it. And, um, and so I, uh, Weber is obviously not the perfect materialist, but I think that he begins to develop some ideas that are important in taking us in that direction. And, and you know, the book overall, I mean, I, I stayed at the beginning, I, and I think again at the end, I'm, nobody's a perfect materialist in this. Um, you know, uh, even when we get to Derrida and Foucault, I, you know, there's, there's no place to stand outside the metaphysics of the sign and language. And, and so, you know, we're trapped inside of this, uh, but what they do is they describe 
sort of the circularity of the process in a, in a, in a way that allows us to understand it materially, but we can talk about that later if you want. Certainly. Um, this is the other thing I was going to mention about Weber. Well, you know, it's enough on Weber, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's clearly not a materialist and clearly rejects uh, the, the sort of more aesthetic model. He's still looking at the world within the framework of, of the scientific paradigm and says, well, you know, this is, this is all we can do with regard to science because people have their own value system as they formulate it in the struggle against other value systems. Before we do leave uh, Weber, though, I am kind of curious to hear you talk a little bit about how Weber sort of critiques Marx in particular, and I guess Hegel to some degree as well, as, as part of that whole, as far as the, the teleological element. Yeah, I, um, I actually think Weber's critique of Marx is, is, is interesting and, and pretty powerful, actually, um, because... Um, what Weber tries to do is bring Marx's point of view within his own framework of inter interpretive sociology and, um, and therefore claim that what Marx is engaged in is um, his own interpretation of history based on his own value system. Jim Weber is going to make this distinction kind of in the Kantian mold between facts and values, phenomenal, noumenal. Um, and then um, say, well, our understanding of the world is going to be formulated or constructed, interpreted based on the things that we think are important to us, our value system. And so he's going to say about Marx, that that's what Marx did, um, that he was concerned about the plight of the working class. Uh, he was able to see the ways in which capitalism operate in order to extract uh, unremunerated labor out of workers, um, and that uh, this he found to be an offense, and here I'm going to use a word purposefully, an offense against human essence. And see, because you do have this tension in Marx between his, what I'll argue is his ethical side and his more logical, economic, scientific, if you like, analysis. Um, and um, and I, I, I think that that's actually a problem in Marx, and I think that's what Derrida's referring to in both positions and inspectors of Marx when he talks about Marx kind of having a problem. I think that this is kind of it. He still uses some essentialist language. I think Weber helps us understand where that's coming from because... Um, you know, I think Marx is very much concerned about the plight of the working class. It's his research into, you know, uh, British history, uh, both long-term and short-term, uh, you know, I think conveys all of that. And Weber says, look, 
you know, Weber, uh, excuse me, Marx cared about these things. This is what he wanted to explore, but it was informed by his value system. Hence, he created an interpretation of history, not a scientific analysis per se. And, and this, is, this is the problem we have with that scientific paradigm. And I'll, I'll, I'll say what I think, you know, what is part of this problem, which is that, you know, Marx is a product of his time in history. We have to think about the context in which Marx is writing. And, you know, Engels uh, compares Marx to Darwin in the speech he gives at his graveside. I think that that's very telling. Very telling, yeah. Because they're trying to operate within a mid-19th century understanding of, of science, which means we have to have causal factors. Uh, we have to be able to identify, to be scientific, we have to create causal connections. See, when, by the time we get to post-structuralism, the, there's an anthropological understanding that what we're trying to create is an understanding of the world and how we get here, and that the strict nature of causality in that framework isn't always useful, and it, it narrows Marx's approach. And so, you know, all we can talk about is class. And this is one of the things that Weber is critical of Marx about. He says, you know, they're trying to force everything into an economic model, trying to force everything into production, which means and the only form of production, is, uh, only form of oppression becomes class oppression. And, and in fact, we see many different forms of oppression in society. And we, so we need a, a model that's a little bit broader than that. And so um, I think um, I like some of what Weber is critical of Marx about. I actually wrote a paper many years ago that I never even tried to publish uh, on Weber's critique of Marx. Um, and uh, I have that in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's uh, but I think it's a powerful critique and it still leaves see I think it still leaves Marx's ethical argument intact because um, you can make the claim very easily that capitalism is a system built upon exploitation of the working class uh, you can, as Marx did, I think very effectively, lay out a concept of surplus value and, and the extraction that is allowed to occur because of, the, because of the wage labor system and how that operates. I think those things are still valid points. The question is, are they informed by science and history or they, are they informed by a value system that says this is inappropriate? Right. Okay. Was it also Weber that more that also elaborated on the concept of uh, of cultural capital as well, or am I mixing my sociologists up? Cultural capital. Or, I don't really <laughs> recall that in in Weber. I could have missed it. I guess. Um, Maybe I'm thinking about Durkheim, but there was more like so. It was yes, there was economic capital which displayed, you know power, but also just, I guess, maybe more so the social relations of the wealthy as well as a separate entity outside of that. So even though you may not have um, 
wealth in the form of capital, you know, your parents had a network of so-and-so, you know, yeah. and so that was also maybe in addition to, and I think something that where that kind of eludes Marx a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think we get some of that too with, with Althusser, um, who talks about the way in which those things work and within a, a framework of, of, you know, elite cooperation and, uh, what plutocracy looks like and how it maintains itself through ideological systems, um, which, you know, I think is, is a useful addition. And so from there, I think it is, there's a little bit of a link where you're talking about how, if I remember correctly, the, the early Marx was perhaps more considered or more, I guess ethics was a bigger consideration at the beginning and you kind of lay out sort of a tripartite breakdown of, of Marx's career from the, the manuscripts, yeah. the German ideology. And then I forget yeah. the last, the last piece. Yeah. I, I mean, I, um, I think that early Marx and here I'm talking about 1844 manuscripts and back in there, you see much more, uh, a much larger discussion, let's say, of, of ethical issues as they relate to capitalism. Um, I love that line, you know, in, in the 1844 manuscripts where, you know, it says your neighbor's need becomes your opportunity and, you know, the capitalist is a, a pimp between a person and their needs and uh, all of those things convey as kind of ethical attitude where he describes Capitalism is uh, built upon greed and avarice. Um, that's a much different language than we get in Capital and Gundrisa and some of the later work. Um, it's also, I mean, I, th I think it's easy to see maybe the, the problem that this creates for materialism. Now, if, if you think about the notion of alienation, to be alienated, you have to be alienated from something, right? You have to be separated from something. And what comes through very clearly in the 1844 manuscripts is that we're sort of alienated from our essence. Um, and uh, that's not really a materialist concept. It may be a good concept, and I'm not saying it's not, but is it really consistent with his materialist point of view which is so tied to uh, sort of empiricism in science. And so um, I, I, you know, I, and I think that these things create a certain logical inconsistency. At the same time though, M Marx does something in the German ideology that's absolutely fantastic and pathbreaking. Um, because by the time we get to the German ideologies, talking a little bit differently about these things, and we get uh, uh, a reversal, let's say, in the relationship between the subject and the institutions of power, um, that uh, that really we we don't see articulated in the same way previously in in our social and philosophy history. Um, because Marx makes it very clear, as I said earlier, you know, with, 
with Plato, Kropotkin, Hobbes, uh, we, we get the definition of subjectivity first as a transcendental concept. And in the German ideology, we see Marx saying, no, the, the human subject is constructed or created out of the social environment in which they live. If you accept that, and I think that there's, a, there's tension now between this and the 1844 manuscripts, which may explain why they never got published uh, in his lifetime. Or uh, There's a tension there because in the German ideology, he makes it clear that those institutional factors shape subjectivity. Therefore, essence has to be, is only relative to the historical context in which it is constructed. And he says at one point, you know, well, you know, human beings have throughout history created this illusion that they've captured essence. But, uh, but in fact, as human beings living inside of history, they're just reflecting their environment and particularly the power relations that exist in their environment. That is a tremendously powerful idea that I think has informed everything since quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. People don't, well, some people do, but you don't see a lot of people today beginning their treatises with, this is what a human being is. And I think that is owed to Marx. As somebody who's beginning to now reverse that relationship between power and identity, because I think people used to believe that we needed to construct institutions that were consistent with our transcendental selves, our transcendental universal subject selves. I don't think people are really talking in that, those terms anymore. And I don't think that, you know, you don't see 20th century political philosophy engaging that. Well, there is one group, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, engaging that kind of model. Uh, of the relationship between the individual and institutional power. Today, I think you you see much more concern about the way in which institutions shape human identities through system of systems of reward and punishment, um, so that that order is maintained, let's say, through a a constructed sense of legitimacy. Do you feel, I, I mean, I feel like there's still so much of a legacy of idealism, though, even in current, I think really, I mean, in liberal, in liberalism in particular, I think maybe, maybe that's my amateur reading of, of it, but I feel like that is their model of institution is that, I don't know, there's this, you know, perfect essence of, you know, whatever the, of justice or, or what oh, have yeah. you that is represented by institutions when, I don't know. It uh, seems to be a problem, I think, still that we're dealing well, with, even at post Liberalism is still a very powerful model. I mean this in the sense of liberal enlightenment humanism. Um, people still view the hegemonic state as, as a natural condition. Uh, after all, I mean, this, the, the nation state and modernism developed together develop, yeah. and so there's a lot of uh a lot of connections between the two and so the 
the modern notion of sovereignty uh, is, is identified with modernity itself. Um, and, uh, and then the question is, well, if this is the natural condition, then how do we make it work? But of course, it's a constructed condition too. Um, and in that sense, democracy, I, I, I don't want to open up too much of a new can of worms here, but, <laughs> but we probably need to rethink the concept of democracy in this context too, because um, I'm not one of the people who argues that um, the absence of truth legitimates or, or becomes then the final justification for democratic practice. You do see this argued, you know, that democracy becomes more important without truth. And I think there's an argument to be made for that. I think that's the, the, the link of the sophist to Periclean democracy, quite frankly. Um, but I, I view democracy as different, as something different. I view democracy as a technology of integration, that it's been used to integrate society in a way that seems um, to produce um, a sense of order, fairness, and justice, but, but that it's, it's not a truth in and, in and of itself, and I think we've lost that. I think the Greeks had a better sense of that. You know, Ar Aristotle, talking about rule by the one, the few, and the many, still understands that rule by the many, many is still rule. Today, I, I think we've sort of lost that, um, and I, th I think in some ways, I think the post-structuralists helped to get, for us to help get us, get, get that back. You know, so we can kind of st step back from our historical presence and say, well, what is the function? Is there a pragmatic function of democracy here? And I think that, that we need to keep that in mind rather than democracy being some universal truth that we, you know, that, that it, it, it has also served a very different kind of function in, in the history of the West. Yeah, and I, I think just as an aside, I think that kind of notion of democracy is in the post-structuralist context is really important for, I don't know, the kind of, the kind of anarchism that I sort of buy into or acknowledge or uh, find myself most drawn to with that sort of post-structuralist critique added on top and kind of critique going back, like you mentioned Kropotkin earlier, I think going and picking up and, you know, modernizing, I don't know, bringing anarchism to the, to a more sophisticated understanding or a more sophisticated position. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the 19th century anarchists, I mean, Godwin, Bakunin, Kropotkin, um, you still have a strong sense among them that, that um, human beings are essentially born innocent and corrupted by institutions. Um, and so I would argue there's still that sort of ontological undercurrent in, in the way in which they approach anarchism. What I think the post-structuralists are doing is, is saying, hey, wait a minute. The question is not um, how do we create a, a logic of resistance. You get that in liberalism. Uh, 
the, the issue for us is how do you justify rulership? How do you, how do you assert a narrative of identity over human beings uh, who are essentially self-making creatures? Um, and I think that that's, that's where the anarchist twist comes. It sort of reverses that relationship and says, well, wait a minute. All of these institutions, whether you're talking about the nation state, uh, the criminal justice system, the, uh, the, the medical community, the psychiatric community, the religious community, they're all trying, they, they, they operationalize their power by assigning identity to people. And, uh, and the post-structuralists post are saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, what gives you that right? You know, convince me first before you do this um, of the legitimacy of that project. And that's something that becomes impossible to do. Um, and so I, th I think the, you know, the source uh, is really one that, that, that goes back to the sort of epistemological attitude, which is that you know, we don't know things in their essence. We can't define the essence of human beings for all sorts of complicated reasons that we're not going to go into. But uh, if that is in fact the case, then you have to ask the question, well, you know, why uh, or what gives all of these institutions the right to take away my sort of self-constructive uh, character? Uh, to intervene in my life and, and um, to make me follow a meta-narrative that is not of my own construction or choosing. And, and so um, I think that those kinds of questions now sort of reverse that relationship between knowledge and power. Back to Marx, I think it's really interesting. Really, I mean, the whole concept of the book is very interesting to me because I mean, whenever you kind of even talk to people that are, you know, relatively in this world, maybe not in the academic world, but, you know, I engage with a lot of people, whether it be online or on the podcast that were influenced by Marx. And so when you say the word materialism, like Marx, that's almost synonymous with Marx almost entirely. Right. But well, you often, talk to people who know what materialism right. is. Because <laughs> I, I talk to people who have a, a lot of sense of, of what some of the outcomes would be about socializing the economy and things like that. But the philosophic nature of, of materialism is something I don't think, you know, people address as much when it's, it's such a powerful concept that, that I don't know how you can you know, talk about the important side of Marx without having a good knowledge of materialism, which is why I'm happy if people you talk to do, because I don't find that a lot. Well, I, I just, I mean, even nominally, just in general, in, in conversation, I think there's been, I don't know if it's a result of a uh, the election or, so I feel like there, and I don't know, you might have more context than I do on this, that there's been a, a huge resurgence of Marx. And so a lot of the people that I engage with that are on some, you know, element of the left or identify with that are more commonly are Marxist 
then I think we're, you know, maybe around the time that, you know, the world trade uh, protests, you know, in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, that kind of anarchist moment was happening. Um, I think it seems like the anarchist side has sort of waned a bit and Marx is, has picked up quite a bit. So, well, I, yeah, I think that that's true. Um, and, um, it cuts a different, a couple of different ways because in a sense, the creation of global capitalism is what Marx predicted. So the emergence of these institutional structures to manage, you know, uh, international capitalism would seem to be consistent with what Marx predicted was going to happen. Um, and so, and, and the world, trade organization as an organization that is to bring that to fruition and uh and capitalism and this kind of a neo-imperialist fashion sort of entering every corner of the world and commodifying everything for uh the capitalist form of production seems to be uh, something very consistent with marx what marx believed was as universal process of, of human development. Um, and so we're, we're in a, a kind of limbo now between these two worlds. Um, and I think people have seen or know better feel the squeeze that is produced by this because, um, you know, if you're, um, you're, you're in the Midwest somewhere. So I, I gather, right. I'm in Texas, right in the in the heart of Texas in Austin. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, sort of, yes. Well, um, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what they produce there, but if you were, you know worked at a steel mill and your mill closed up, or here in North Carolina we have textile mills. If they close up and they move production offshore, that is consistent with what you would expect to occur with the globalization of capital and the use of these institutional structures then to facilitate that. And so I think people feel the squeeze of that. I think that that's probably why Hillary lost Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, because people feel the squeeze of that. Those are places that lost jobs and um, put the working class uh, in, a, in a relatively precarious position and where, you know, people had to search out jobs where they couldn't support their families. And, and now, um, and so, you know, people are looking for a, a, an alternative. And, um, you know, younger people, and I see this with my students, they, they, they didn't grow up with the fear of the Soviet Union. And, uh, and so, Although Putin isn't doing that any any good, but <laughs> it's another subject. Uh, but they didn't grow up with the fear of the Soviet Union. They didn't grow up with that constant barrage of propaganda. Uh, they didn't have to crawl under their desks for fear of a nuclear attack. Um, and so that generation looking for change is going to entertain something that previous generations in the 20th century in the United States really didn't. Um, we haven't had a strong socialist movement in the United States, but it seems now that the ideas 
particularly of democratic socialism, have a certain traction here. Um, and I've actually been a little surprised in a pleasant sort of way that Bernie Sanders has been able to make the headway that he has because um, it means that there are still people in the society who care about other people as opposed to just corporate profits. You know, we've, we're living in an age where there's a kind of, I would describe it as a neo-social Darwinist ethic in the United States, um, which, is, which is really what supply-side economics is. It's a neo-social Darwinism. Um, and it, it says, you know, if rich, rich people are rich, then everybody else will have their boats raised at the same time. Um, which is, by the way, right out of an article published by uh, William Graham Sumner, the famous social Darwinist. Uh, he get, uh, it's, called, it's an article called um, The Concentration of Wealth, Its Economic Justification. And it, it reads like something written by Arthur Laffer. Um, but but that is, that's the logic. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's not, it's not surprising, <laughs> to be honest. No, no. And, and so what we see, we've seen really since the 1980s is the emergence of this philosophy in the United States that has really put the squeeze on the working class. And they're looking for alternatives. And I get, <clears throat> you know, people in my Marxism class who are, you know, looking for those alternatives. It's, it's also a class that is assigned as part of our, so the choices we have in our gen ed program, but it's part of a cluster that includes courses in the business school, which I think is really interesting. So I That's get very, Yeah. Um, you know, but, I barely got any exposure to Marx at all in my sociology courses. <laughs> so really? that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, I thought the sociologists were filled with Marxists. I, yeah, exactly. That that's, that's kind of, well, you know, obviously, you know, one school's not a good uh, sample, but yeah, I, we hardly, I think, maybe base superstructure and sort of conflict theory was yeah. touched on in my intro to sociology, sociology class, but that's really it. I mean, we never really got into the political economy elements mm -hmm. or any, anything like that, or, you know, the aspects of ideology or the, the real, I think, really the meat of where Marx is most influential and most interesting for me, at least. But uh, you kind yeah. of talked a little bit about tech. So Texas's economy has historically been one of its extractive as far as oil, petroleum, yeah. right? And then, you know, you had, far, you know, farmers, ranchers largely, yeah. but now due to kind of the right, you know, that sort of right to work, like the Sunbelt kind of movement, right they're drawing in a lot of uh, tech companies, particularly here in Austin, because of that sort of history, like the, okay, there's no labor movement here. Yeah. That's pretty much anathema to, to the Texan character. I'm surprised and, the labor movement has, hasn't made some comeback in the United States. And I, uh, you know, particularly with people who feel themselves in the, kinds of positions that many people in the working class do these days. Um, but there's definitely interest in Marx. 
Um, See, I, I, see. I think the, the innovation that capitalism, how where capitalism innovated was the, the human resources department and they out. So that's the development that really put the kibosh on unions mm-hmm. to a large degree and really kind of did them in. Yeah, it's been harder to sort of unionize service sector workers and that, that's, you know, that they tend to be spread out. They're not as concentrated. And, um, you know, we, we haven't seen um, the ability of the, the service sector to really deal with their own crises. Which I think is one of the, I mean, I work in that industry and <laughs> if there's not, there's not a better, well, there's not a better one, I think, in, in sort of a, in the U.S., that's ripe for organization than, than the customer service industry. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about being sort of mechanized and I mean, it's, it's pretty terrible. The, well, so you I can't mean, outsource those jobs. See, that's the thing. I mean, they still, they still do to some degree, but it's, it's hard whenever you have the language barrier and the, the technology is still not quite there to make it fully 100% viable. Yeah. But yeah, I, um, I'm interested in the technology side. I've published some stuff on technology, but I haven't for a while. Um, basically, you know, raising questions about the politics of all of this and, and where it's all heading. Um, I might, might get back into that at some point. Is that something you would kind of reference Baudrillard? Is that the, sin, I, the, actually, the position that you're coming from or what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I published a piece um, a few years back about Baudrillard and it was uh, actually I published with, with a student that I had at the time who is actually now teaching here in the philosophy department. Um, but what we talked about in the paper was kind of challenged the idea that Baudrillard had rejected Marx at some point because some of the secondary literature suggests that he moved away from Marx. And the the argument in the paper was really that what Baudrillard is trying to do is augment Marx, you know, with the notion of symbolic value. Right. That this is this is something that Baudrillard wants to add as a description of what is taking place in the late 20th century. So it gives us another way to understand uh, how capitalism continues to flourish and function, even when you know most people um, have the material necessities, at least most people in the West have the material necessities of existence. And the question is, well, you know, why haven't all of those contradictions manifested themselves as uh, you know, the productive facilities have managed to saturate markets. And, you know, Baudrillard has an answer to that, which is that now we're producing for symbolic exchange. And, um, and I think that that's a very useful concept to add to the Marxian lexicon. And so that's kind of what we argue. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm kind of working my way slowly, but surely through a symbolic exchange and death. Yeah, but that's something that I'm incredible. I've been sort of obsessed with a lot lately is just how this symbolic exchange almost I don't know. It makes ideology that much more 
embedded or difficult to break through or well, to this, escape? I, or mean, I tell my students, you know, go watch The Matrix and then we'll talk. You know, you live inside The Matrix. And even though, you know, we may not be ruled over by alien overlords, that's not the point. The point is that we live in a, in a, in a world that has been constructed and that out of that construction, there are winners and losers. And that, uh, you know, the more we become conscious of our condition, the better chance we have to, to push back against that which is oppressive. And so, um, yeah, we have those discussions all the time, and it's a way for them to sort of get some of the basics of Baudrillard. Uh, so, uh, but, but Baudrillard is, you know, he talks about so many different things. It's hard to pin him down a lot. But back, back to Marx before I take yeah. us on a, on a tangent there. Is there any other, let's see, let me see, I don't think I had any other specific questions. Are there any areas that we didn't cover in terms of Marx that you wanted, did you feel are important or instructive? Well, uh, not so much about Marx, but I wanted to sort of lay out, I think, uh, what might be useful for your listeners is a, just very briefly lay out what I think makes the post-structuralist model uh, materialistic. Because people could argue, and people do argue, that it's kind of ethereal and theoretical and has a sort of a metaphysical underpinning. But I would argue that um, what we're really talking about is the process by which cultures reproduce themselves. And, um, and that they, if, if we don't have essential knowledge, if we are existing in sort of a, a pragmatic universe where we create knowledge where we need it, um, as opposed to discovering knowledge where it exists in some, you know, transcendental realm. If, if we're knowledge creators for our own needs, um, and if the mechanism by which we generate that knowledge and transmit that knowledge is a language system that does not connect to essence but is metaphorical in nature, again, part of the post-structuralist argument, um, then we're really talking about language systems that are self-referencing. And here's what I think is the materialist component of this, is because um, this self-referencing nature of language sort of takes us to the edge of what is possible. Um, and, um, and because it shapes our cognitions of the world, it's going to influence our behavior in the world. And as Marx says, um, you know, ideas move history. Uh, when ideas capture the, the hearts and minds, the thoughts of people in their understanding of the world. Um, and so it's not, um, the, the empirical side of it comes from the human behavioral side of things that, um, when people believe that the world is a certain way, they behave according to that. And so um, we have a, a 
language system that is circular and self-referencing. We have institutions that direct our ide ideological constructions. Um, and those power relations then sort of shape human behavior. And, and, um, and, and as, as I said, I think that that is what gives this a certain materialist component. So I just wanted to add that um, so that, that, you know, your listeners would have some sense of, of where I go in those last couple of chapters. Yeah, which I think you kind of, I'm the next thinker you tackle really goes to that is Nietzsche, who I think, and I mean, I'm pretty sure you would agree is probably that's, he's the kind of locus for the post-structuralist project predominantly. Also, you know, Marx too, but I think yeah. largely in terms of well, the way that he's looking at that idea of metaphor that you kind of described. Yeah, there's, there's, there are references in various works to this, although the first piece by Nietzsche that I have all of my students read is uh, on truth and lies in a non-moral sense, because it's in there that he talks about um, the metaphorical nature of language, but also what he says is, look, our relationship to the world is an aesthetic relationship, meaning that we interpret reality. Uh, he says in another place, you know, we're, we're a species that survives because we're able to uh, create a certain relative rightness in our understanding of the world, which means that we don't have truth. We create a relative rightness relative to our conditions and context that allows us to function and survive in the world. And so, uh, you know, we... Uh, invent systems and institutions that all assist in that, that doesn't mean that, um, that they have some kind of essentialist character. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, our laws are sent down to us on stone tablets. It means that we create a certain relative rightness in our understanding so that we can kind of muddle along as a species on this third planet around the sun spinning in space and, um, and with, a, with an incredibly aggrandized sense of self. Nietzsche is always trying to remind us that we need to be humble. To that end, I actually want to read, did you have a good, great quote here from Nietzsche and then your addition to it that I that I think I want to share with the listeners. There exists neither spirit, nor reason, nor thinking, nor consciousness, nor soul, nor will, nor truth. All are fictions that are of no use. There is no question of subject and object, but of a particular species of animal that can prosper only through a certain relative rightness, above all, regularity of its perceptions. Therefore, truth eludes us. Our minds are not capable of such power. Truth cannot be found or discovered. Our knowledge is always human-centric, a reflection of our needs, coupled with our limited capacities. Nietzsche's point is that a biolog as biological creatures, we, need, we have a need to adjust our material activities to the realities of this world. In this process, we create an understanding of the world which we code into narratives. These narratives are not reality, but illusions that we identify as truths or universals, when we are in fact incapable of such constructions. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> well, thank you. But 
what else in terms of, I mean, I, maybe that sums up, to be honest, kind of the, the materialism that, that Nietzsche, lay, or Nietzsche laid out for us. Yeah. And, you know, Nietzsche, I, there's so many different facets to it. And, that you know, there, there are passages that seem contradictory. Uh, I think to get Nietzsche, we always got to take a step back. We have to read it with a certain artistic license, understand the poetry of it, but also understand the depth of it. Um, and, uh, and what he's trying to do, um, you know, so you get a, a work like the genealogy of morals, which in parts is, is biting in parts hilarious because he's just so biting in his criticism and, the way in which he frames things. I mean, it's really, uh, it, it's an extraordinary piece of work. But then you step back and you say, well, what's he really trying to do here? He's trying to explain the origins of ethics and morals within a, by, within a framework where, where he avoids constructing a transcendental subject. And saying, okay, what were the material conditions that gave rise to a certain view of morality? That's a very serious question. And, and it's, it's what makes, uh, even though, you know, he is at times the jester and very funny and uh, always blasphemous and bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, there's something really serious going on under all of that. And that's that... You know, raising that question, how do we, how did we come to believe? See that the question is no longer what is truth or what is true. The question is now, how did this species of being come to believe that certain things were true? That's a second order question. And that's where Nietzsche is operating in the you know, middle to late 19th century. And, and in that context, it's, you know, bizarro world. People don't understand that, you know, that's what he's doing. And then when people begin to see that, I think there's a whole other side of Nietzsche that's opened up, a much more serious side. Which I think, I mean, that goes to chapter, chapter six of the book, which I, I love the title, by the way, here, which is Post-Structuralism and the Material Force of Text. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> I really enjoy that. Well, good, because, you know, I've, I've struggled with the, the, the title of the book itself. I'm still not completely happy. It's not sexy enough, you know, <laughs> the book title. It's just it's too mechanical. I don't know. Um, I worry about that. Although the publisher just did tell me they're putting out a paperback edition in March, so I was happy about that. Um, but I won't, I, yeah, I won't change the title. <laughs> um, and I guess to that end, we can sort of wrap up things with sort of where the, where the poster, well, I guess you, you kind of largely did this, but maybe we can put a bow on the post-structuralist mutation or development of a, of a materials philosophy, or maybe kind of summarize that for us. Well, um, Again, I would say the concern is for trying to identify multiple forms of oppression um, and, um, and 
create a sort of a, a legitimate avenue for, for critique um, that is not based on a, uh, uh, the construction of a transcendental subject, but is in fact based on an epistemological critique of, uh, of universal thought, meta-narratives, um, overarching claims to knowledge, all of which are now sort of open to critique, suspect, um, and, and hence um, it's a mechanism by which uh, people can challenge the way in which power is exercised in the society through the construction of subjectivity and the, the imposition of those constructions onto people, whether we're talking about um, homosexuals, women, uh, uh, people's, uh, you know, uh, being discriminated against for race, class, sexual orientation. When you can look down the list and then begin to identify how that relates to the imposed construction uh, of, of identity on those people and begin to then create a counter-narrative by undercutting the foundations for those, uh, whether they're tied to uh, some kind of, of universalist conception, whether religious or uh, enlightenment humanistic, or that the general sort of, you know, uh, how can I put this, the colonial undercurrent of Enlightenment humanism as it has been applied around the world to justify then uh, the control of people and places and resources uh, that is probably something we need to confront. Um, and it gets masks masked under these kind of universalist claims that uh, that no one wants to talk about, about Western civilization and capitalism and about what they can do to people in their most extreme forms. You may have already exhausted your, your opinion, but I am just curious to circle back around to how, how do you see this or post-structuralism in particular when it, in relation to anarchism? And are you familiar, I'm sure you're familiar with there's a couple of things. I'm actually hoping to get them on soon would be uh, so Todd May and Saul Newman. Are you familiar with their work at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we're the, probably the three people have been writing about this the most. And um, of course, my piece, uh, what's it called? Post-structuralism and the epistemological basis of anarchism has found its way into collections with Newman and, and, uh, and Todd May too. So, uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with their work. And I think we share a certain perspective on this that, um, because one of the things that post-structuralism does by, by undercutting this, the, the claims to, um, sort of foundational principles and foundational knowledge by taking out the idea that the, you know, the sign and the referent have this metaphysical link by, by, eliminating that perspective you open up then an understanding of the world being governed by 
power and interests, um, which then allows for, let's say, a, a, a kind of anarchist critique of those institutions that, that, that seek to control subjects. Do you have any- Construct subjects, I should say. Do you have any um, projects that you're currently working on that you, you're willing to discuss at all? Or um, do you have something you're doing some research on? Well, I, I did a paper at a conference last summer that dealt more directly with, with some of the questions surrounding Marx's materialism and what I'm describing as post-structuralist materialism. I think the working title I think I have it here somewhere, is Science and Aesthetics, Critical Materialism for Marx to Post-Structuralism. And uh, I use some of the research for the book, but I'm trying to focus that a little bit more specifically on the question of the scientific paradigm versus the aesthetic paradigm and, um, and look at the transition. And again, I mean, I, I sort of identify Marx within that historical framework of mid-19th century science, and then try and work off of that and see, uh, I argue that, that, you know, this creates in Marx a sort of tension between the ethical and the, and the scientific. And so the more successful he is in arguing one side, the less successful he is in arguing the other, and it creates this, this tension um, and then trying to develop out of that then a sort of a, a post-structuralist understanding of power. And uh, so that's, that's sort of the project right now. After okay. that, I'm not sure. Understand. Um, well, it's, I, I mean, I, th I think unless you have anything to add, I think that's a, that's a pretty good stopping point for us. Okay. But I tr just tremendously happy that we actually got we got this recorded um, yeah. after a few weeks uh really thankful that you took the time out of your day to to come talk and and, and join the project that really means a lot it was it was awesome <laughs> there's i feel like there's so few, it's such a kind of a niche area and especially since you have that kind of overlap with sort of the anarchist angle too um it's it's such a unique thing it's it's really really great to have you well thank you very much it was a pleasure and Absolutely. Uh, good luck to you. I mean, I, I really appreciate you doing this. I think that this is important to get all of this stuff recorded and out there and because not everybody's going to read a book, but they can listen to a podcast. Right. So this is really important. It's a lot of fun. You know, you mentioned that piece. You I think I actually did a, another episode where I read that, that other article. Uh, the post-structuralism and uh, ah, damn, it, I forget the title off the epistemological of basis of anarchism. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm probably the almost certain that I read that. It's <laughs> gotten the most traction over the years. Probably, it's been translated into a bunch of different languages. And I just got a copy of uh, it was actually Todd May, um, Saul Newman, and I. They translated the three pieces that we did into Greek. And I just got a copy of that. It looks interesting in Greek. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been an exciting field to work in, actually. It's sort of, uh, there aren't a lot of people working in this area, but it is a little niche area that, that uh, 
I think continues to draw people in and continues to generate some interest. Yeah, I think especially now, at least in, I see a lot, really Deleuze is kind of the big post-structuralist that you see talked about right now. He's the kind of the, there's been a resurgence of Deleuze quite a bit. Really? Oh, I love his book on Nietzsche. You know, no one has been more misread and misunderstood than Nietzsche. I mean, it's just, and Deleuze's book is just really good, Nietzschean philosophy. Um, and I think he's, he's got an insight into what Nietzsche's up to that, that I don't think many other people have. It's really a great book. You know, someone who you should, if you're not already familiar with them, you should check out is, uh, and I did an episode with him as well uh, called Dark Deleuze, is Andrew Colt. No, I don't know him. He is very much in kind of the same, uh, now he's, he's a bit younger. He's, I, would, I think he's probably mid to late 30s. But uh, he, he, that's his latest book, I think, came out in 2016, was Dark Deleuze. But he's a really interesting guy um, working in kind of that same post-structuralist anarchist realm mm-hmm. that's really interesting. And, I mean, I, I think his politics are fantastic, too. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have to – I'll send you a – I'll email you a, a link to that episode. I think you might find that pretty yeah. interesting. Well, thank you. Absolutely. But uh, Andy, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. But um, once again, Andrew M. Koch, thanks so much for joining us on Podcast Kara Cooper Cherry. That is us signing off for the week. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.